Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor for about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild as well as USSF. And this is John Mike. I'm near completion of my PhD. I'm a columnist and team leader for team member, sorry, for EliteFTS.com, right for Matrix Fitness and Bodybuilding magazines. And I love to eat and eat to live. <laughs> That's right. And we have also with us Dr. Mike Russell, and he, um, Mike has a background in biochemistry and let me emphasize real, right? A real university degree in biochemistry. I mean, it seems like you got all these guys in the fitness industry. They sort of go ramble on about some biochemistry background because it's, it sounds impressively vague or something. But Mike has a real background at the undergraduate level in biochem. He also has his doctorate uh, from nutrition proper from Penn State. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Penn State. Uh, and again, I, we were talking before we hit the record button, everybody, but a lot of people in the field, uh, it seems like they're on the fitness side talking about nutrition. But, you know, here we've got someone with us today with a doctorate uh, in nutrition. So uh, I myself, my doctorate's in exercise physiology. So I don't have a doctorate in nutrition either. So we're going to pick Mike's brain about a few things, uh, starting with a little bit of news. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, now, Dr. Roussel, you said you were just down in D.C. Uh, offering some testimony about some of the new uh, government recommendations here in the states as far as dietary issues. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, earlier in February, the um, there's a science advisory committee that the government basically taps to um, put together all the research and make some recommendations. So they created like this 500 page document that's confusing and very contradictory at different points. Um, and then uh, the, um, the NIH opens it up for public comments. And so that's what I was at this last week. And I mean, basically, unfortunately, it's, it's like every wacko nutritionist goes down there to kind of spit their agenda. Um, and then like a lot of food groups are down there, you know, putting in their piece, like there's an international federation for bottled water. They were there talking about how, you know, the hydration recommendations need to be stronger. Um, but, you know, so I went down there to basically because some of the research that I had done had been erroneously excluded from the nutrition evidence library mm. that they used to make recommendations. So I was down there just basically, um, you know, kind of pointing out this clerical error in a public forum so that they could then uh, consider it. Um, but I think, you know, some of the big things with the new dietary guidelines if you look at the report, and this is really, these aren't the new guidelines. This is a group of independent scientists who, this is their opinion on what the guidelines should be based on the evidence. So the actual guidelines aren't going to come out until uh, the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, but basically kind of the big things that were new this time around was they did not make cholesterol uh, recommendations, recommendations for dietary cholesterol, which has been, you know, in nutrition, such a hot button for years. Sure. And, uh, when I was down at DC, I could not believe it. There were a lot of groups 
um, like advocacy groups, vegetarian and vegan advocacy groups, of course, nuts over the fact that there were no cholesterol recommendations and how it was like irresponsible and dietary cholesterol is the thing that's driving disease and the only amount of dietary cholesterol that's safe is no cholesterol. Like it was just, it totally blew my mind um, <laughs> because I, it was like they, they were so out of touch with the science. Um, so that was one big thing was no cholesterol. Um, you know, one of the interesting things though about this oral <laughs> form is that there's no fact checking, right? Cause you're just up there. You have three minutes to talk. No one can interrupt you and no one can ask any questions. And one gentleman got up, a physician, and was talking about dietary cholesterol and said, if you eat half an egg a day, that'll increase your LDL cholesterol by two points. And I'm like, that's like totally made up. Like, that doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my kids eat three eggs a day. Easy. And they're six. Right. I mean, it's like um, so that was really interesting. So that was one of the big ones. Uh, the other big thing was sugar. Uh, the, the advisory committee really came down hard on added sugars, um, which I feel like is pretty hard to argue with. Mm -hmm. Um, unless you're from the sugar and confectionery board, which was there saying that, you know, people (laughs) should be able to have cigarettes at candy, right? Like they'll do it on their own. It doesn't need to be part of the rec. It's like, Um, it's like cigarettes won't kill you type of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just have a couple to relax, right? <laughs> um, I thought one of the biggest changes, too, was they really acknowledged uh, the fact that different diets work for different people and that there are different, you know, dietary patterns or kind of like themes to a diet that you could put into play that'll get you the results you want. Um, and what was interesting about the report is they would say that on one page and on the other page, they'd list all the foods that you can't eat. And so it would kind of steer you down the same, you know, the same pattern, which was very similar to, to what it's been in the past, unfortunately. Well, and what's confusing um, about that to people, of course, is the old idea is, again, it doesn't really take nutrigenetics into play, right? And so they're trying to say back to the old idea, like, don't eat cholesterol, don't eat saturated fat. And yet it almost sounds like this document's contradicting itself in parts. Oh, the document, I, it's so, it's 500 pages of contradiction. It's amazing. Holy crap, Jesus. I would say the only thing there were, so there were 75 people that gave oral comments last week. The only thing that everyone agreed upon was that the document was contradictory. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so that was, you know, so I thought, so that was really interesting. And I, you know, it doesn't help. Like if you look at, if you look at intake data in the U.S. over the last 25 years, right? So saturated fat intake, I always say this all the time when I, when I talk to people, um, saturated fat intake has not changed on a grams per day basis since the 80s. Uh, on a percent calorie basis, it's decreased because we've increased the amount of carbohydrates we eat mm-hmm. by 200 calories. But if you look at like the actual amount of saturated fat people are eating, it hasn't changed. So despite all this you know, public health messaging, and I mean, I don't think there's been a stronger nutrition public health message than eat less saturated fat. Uh, like for the course of my whole life, right? And it has met made has made zero impact. Um, so I mean, I really think we need to look at it. And what I do a lot with my private counseling is it's more about the the application of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, I think fortunately in the powerlifting crowd, you know, people are just more dedicated, and so it's less about like how can you manipulate yourself to do what you're supposed to do. And it's more about fine tuning, you know, what you're actually doing. But, um, you know, for the average person, it's it's actually trying to get them to do the thing. That's the biggest problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've long said similar things. You know, it's 
once you can start to agree that people differ, you know, it's it becomes more practice than it is theory. You know, you'll even hear some guys like Tim Patterson talk about that. You know, really, when it comes to training programs or nutrition, if you can get people just to stick with something for a while, they're probably going to move in a better direction than, than nothing, you know, than just being victimized by the food industry, for example, or, you know, or whatever, but... Mike, yeah. let me ask, let me ask you this because um, I mean, this has been a hot topic for years. I mean, the, the theory that that fat and cholesterol um, cause heart disease. I mean, it's it's became widely accepted despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. But I remember just last month of February, there was numerous media reports that came out of you know the nation's top nutrition advisory panels, and they essentially said that um, cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. You know, right? So, why do you why do you think that they just couldn't really agree on cholesterol? Because, I mean, despite the, despite the document just being, you know, overly con- uh, overly contradictory. Well, I, I think that they're starting to agree on cholesterol. I think it it just takes a long time to move the ship. Yeah. You know, um, and that's a big you know that was a big message for a long time, and and the data I would say you know even. Like the American Heart Association has been pretty upfront with they're not really concerned about dietary cholesterol for years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just taken a while to, to move that ship. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, people definitely oversimplify cardio. So my, my PhD was actually in cardiovascular disease nutrition. And so when we look at this cholesterol and saturated fat and kind of all those things, they definitely oversimplify it. Um, you know, yes, saturated fat's not uh, maybe as much of a significant independent player as we've once thought, you know, that just reducing saturated fat itself would then reduce your overall risk. Uh, but is it completely out of the, you know, does it completely out of the playing field that has no role in heart health? Definitely not. You know, like LDL cholesterol, you get small, small, dense LDL cholesterol molecules, right. And which are caused by increased saturated fat in your diet and increased sugar. And those molecules get into your blood vessels, oxidize, and start atherosclerosis. You know, so it's like they're involved, but they're not the only thing. And where we really went wrong was that, and we, I mean, the food industry, because they're the ones I really think who perpetuated this, when it was the low-fat, low-saturated fat message, Mm -hmm. they just... Let's just throw sugar in everything because you got to make it taste good. You know, it's like you can taste good by salt, sugar, or fat, right? I mean, those are basically... When you're looking for something that needs to be shelf stable, those are your three options. Yeah. And they said, "Well, let's just go with sugar." So everybody started eating sugar. They didn't eat any less saturated fat, right? They just ate more sugar, and it perpetuated this huge, huge issue. Um, so I don't think that. I think if you look at the actual data, it really says that you know what you replace saturated fat with in your diet makes a difference, and replacing sugar is no good of a switch. And that also, you know, once you get below 10% of total calories from saturated fat, for most people, there's probably not an added benefit. Um, so, you know, I think the messaging has been simplified too much um, kind of in this pushback against the man movement on the Internet. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, it comes back to like almost every topic we've talked about is the answer is not black and white. It's usually yep. somewhere <laughs> in the gray. It's like not good, bad. It's yeah, but. You know, 
Well, you know, I think like with everything. Yeah, th- that's one of the reasons that diet books become so confusing because, you know, Mike, I know you've written uh, a number of books, but oftentimes a publisher or an editor, someone will come to you and say, here's the reader hook. I want you to say this is the reason that we're all fat or, mm-hmm. you know, that is what I want you to get <laughs> readers interested in. Right. And, and that it's never that simple. And so if you want to carve a niche into the marketplace, because I think people rip on dietary supplements so often, but I think a lot of diet books, they're as much of a scam market as a lot of the dietary supplements are, you know, because everybody's trying to create a niche like they have the answer that everyone else has overlooked. You know, there's new rules, the new revolution and this and that. And no offense, I have friends that have that kind of title in their books, but no, you're not rewriting the rules. There's not one reason, but the public wants a simplified message Mm -hmm. and nutrition and genetics and biochemistry are not always that simple you know they're just it's like einstein used to say you know make things as simple as possible but not simpler and i think you can't you can't boil things down uh to a single message like you know saturated fat is good or saturated fat is bad you know these are loaded words and science doesn't work like that yeah they just put all these labels into it and and it's just like like you said oversimplification and don't eat this. Don't eat that. And yes. I'm just like, it's all this stupid crap. I mean, and I understand people want a simplified message, but I think also to mind to add on to that, people just don't want to think about mm-hmm. what they have to do or what they should do. They want somebody else to, to tell them or do it for them, which, you know, from, from working with clients and, and athletes and stuff, I understand that part, but you also need to take responsibility person also needs to take responsibility for themselves as well you know because if you're just telling people eat this eat that and and then they hear the same thing from somebody else or something different then they then it just starts to cycle over again and it just becomes extremely confusing um i am i know we're all fans of, of saturated fat but i remember jeff bolek even from like 10 years ago from 2005 he has this really great quote and he says the recommendation to intentionally restrict Saturated fat is unwarranted and only serves to contribute to the misleading rhetoric surrounding the health effects of saturated fat. I mean, that was that was ten years ago. Oh. Yeah, he's very much the, uh, of course, the almost carb-free ketogenic kind of proponent. But I really like yeah. him. You know, I, I think I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Volek to be on the show too because his his perspective is very interesting and of course he also he's one of those guys that totally breaks the mold he's a power lifter for god's sake he has no body fat you know yeah <laughs> so he's, he's interesting yeah, he's a really um i had him come down to penn state for the day once to give a talk because he went to penn state um and uh yeah he he's got a lot of he does a lot of interesting research and um i think his perspective on on carb restriction is is very academic where I think a lot of the time, most people have a wacko perspective on what it should be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of along the lines of when I introduced you, Mike, and I said, you know, Dr. Roussel has real background in these things because mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's so much nonsense with, you know, easily accessible nonsense on YouTube and everything. I don't think most people understand how deep the rabbit hole goes. You know, some of these guys say, oh, I, you know, I'm a biochemist. No, you're not. <laughs> no, yeah, you're, no, you're not. Well, it's like it's the same thing with like you know, with nutrition or training. I'm I'm a nutrition expert, and I'm this and that. I mean, you don't know jack shit about nutrition, and I'm not I'm not going to say that I'm not going to say that you know I'm the world's expert on nutrition either. But I mean, if you don't know some of these basic things, I mean, omega six, omega three, like just some basic terms, 
I mean, how do you call yourself a new expert on, on any? I mean, the fact is, there's really not, uh, there's just so many experts in a wide variety of things. I mean, you can't be an expert on everything, you know. No, that's for sure. In fact, that's that's the kind of thing when, uh, Mike, when you were mentioning Jeff Volek about he has a very academic view of these things. Uh, I think a lot of people need to realize, you know, once you're at the doctoral level, um, especially if you stay in academics, you specialize. You know, you get a line of inquiry. You get a line of research. And, uh, you know, John, you and I have talked about this, but you, you probably yeah. have the broadest knowledge base when you take your comps at the doctoral level. And after that, uh, you really specialize in a lot of ways, you know, so you can't yeah. be an expert on everything. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I think um, I'm thinking I'm more broad and specialized now since I'm getting ready to finish. And I think I was during my comps. <laughs> oh, well, well, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, yeah, 10 years that. from now, if you're a professor, you're probably going to have a theme to what you yeah. study, you know, and, and you become very versed in that sort of literature, you know, um, now, that doesn't mean there aren't people in more like translational science and medicine and they're trying to get the message out. And again, I know Dr. Roussel does that, too. Um, but you get the idea, you know, about the, the the lay person. They don't always appreciate how specialized some of these uh, researchers become, I suppose. But. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, well, let's uh, – I know we've been at this for a little bit, but let's talk about your background, Mike. Um Obviously, you're influential in the fitness market and the fitness world. Uh, you bring sort of that strong academic uh, and I think more sane approach oftentimes to all of this. Uh, maybe tell the listeners why you do what you do and not just for the nutrition side, but, you know, the resistance training and that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, I think. At the at the biggest levels, why I do it, I think on the resistance training side, I have um, I have four kids. Uh, I have like a four month old, a three month old, and, and a six year old twins. <clears throat> and I always want to make sure that when they get into the discussion of my dad could kick your dad's butt uh, on the playground, that my kids always win. Um, <laughs> that's really you know that's that's one of my motivations in the weight room for sure, um, is that they always win that argument. But, um, you know, I got into the, I think I, I mean, I got into it, I think like a lot of people do, like I was, a, I was a kid, I'll never forget, I, I blew out my knee, I was into sports as, as a, in high school, played in like everything, I blew out my knee playing lacrosse, and the day before I had knee surgery, um, I picked up a muscle in fitness, and, uh, and that was kind of, it was it from there, um, in that magazine, it had a, it had an article that basically laid out every kind of training split you could do. Uh, you know, body part, three on, one off, upper, lower, whole thing. And it just kind of got me hooked um, and got into weightlifting, you know, spent years trying to do like Lee Priest's high volume hypertrophy <laughs> training system, which, you know, <laughs> good luck. Right. right yeah. um, and um, and then went to, uh, you know, went to when I went to college, um, I got in, I did uh, biochemistry and um and actually did organic chemistry which is like as basic of the science i think as you can get mm -hmm. we we're like literally putting together molecules in the lab um and continued lifting weights uh competed in a bodybuilding contest i was very misguided and it was a disaster i did not know uh, that about you that's interesting yeah so it was one of those days, like you know i was armed with like i don't know like chris aceto's nutrition bible and like, a couple <laughs> copies of magazine and um I was doing cardio in the morning. I was doing cardio when I got home and I was like, you know, in the gym for like an hour and a half. And, 
I think I lost more lean tissue than fat when <laughs> I died, <laughs> when I dieted down. Um, and, uh, so did, you know, kind of, I was into it that, and, and just after that, never again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, you know, I think it's really important, like, is when you, when you're first getting into fitness, like, I feel like everybody has like an influence mm-hmm. and, and there was this guy at the gym, uh, where I worked out in Stowe, Vermont. He was not very nice. Um, and he was like the trainer slash owner and he was a former bodybuilder, but he was also a power lifter. And one day I was deadlifting and, and he walked over and I had no idea what I was doing. And he was like, you're really going to hurt yourself. Um, and he took like 20 minutes and showed me how to deadlift. And that was the nicest thing he ever did for me. And, um, and that kind of like set me on this path of like, well, this is where I need to go. This is, it's not concentration curls, you know, and <laughs> right. your flies, like it's deadlifts. And I got the, you know, I was probably like 16 years old. I got the book beyond brawn, um, which is basically all about compound movements and micro progressions. And, uh, spent a summer doing 20 rep squats and, uh, that pretty much changed my life. Um, and went on to, uh, went on to medical school. Um, I was in medical school for about a year and realized that medicine was not what I wanted to do. Um, it was not as sciencey as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And still kind of the life of, of a physician was not the, where I wanted to go. Um, so I left, uh, I managed a biochemistry lab for about a year and a half while I was taking some nutrition courses and applying to graduate school. We did like, um, looked at like coagulation disorders. Um, so it was like, you could do, I mean, it's kind of all the funny things you can do in science. So you, we needed platelets cause they used to analyze platelets and you need platelets in your blood, like fresh, like they need to be alive. So you have to get them every day. So you could donate platelets every day and the lab would give you 12 bucks. So every morning I would stick myself like draw out, you know, 30 or 40 cc's of blood, isolate those platelets, I'd get paid, I'd go buy lunch, and that was kind of like, I did that for about a year. Um, and then I went to, uh, then I went to Penn State and, um, and you know, started my career more in, on the nutrition side of things. And all along, just kind of, you know, I've always been into the weightlifting game. Um, and uh, before I had kids, I'd dabble into sometimes training twice a day and, you um, and, you know, now it's, it's probably, you know, three, four days a week. And, um, and it's, you know, I keep it as, as intense and as heavy as I can. Um, and, you know, we talked about carbohydrate restriction and, and things like that. And, and I've been able to, you know, kind of play around. I do a lot of self-study stuff. Like a couple of years ago, I wanted to pull 500 pounds. I'd never done that before. And I spent about four months um, working with a friend of mine, Joe Dowdell, who's a trainer, and did it purely on a ketogenic diet. You know, I put about 80 pounds on my deadlift. Wow. In, in three months uh eating no carbs that's interesting interesting, really you know we did it like a very counter um like joe's of the belief that you know you don't necessarily need a lot of variety you just need a lot of focus and effort Mm -hmm. um and that with repetition of the movement you know you get a lot better at it and thus you get a lot stronger so i basically you know it was three and a half months and so i had like four workouts like I would do the same workout every day, three, you know, you know, three days a week for a month. And yeah. then I'd move to the next month and we do it three days a week for a month. And, um, I just got, I got really strong. It was awesome. You know, we were talking about nutrigenetics and individual differences and stuff. And, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. And I mean, John, I know what you're like with your pancakes too. I've actually tried, you know, talk about like self-experimentation and whatnot. I've tried stuff yeah. like just a pre-breakfast cardio versus just a low carb diet versus, you know, and I'll, I'll sort of log these things, right. Having access to a lab and just body comp and stuff. And I don't know, I cannot do the ketogenic thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm just yeah. a wuss. I, even during contest dieting, I never could just cut all my carbs out and do like the cyclical ketogenic thing. I just don't have any energy to train. I, I don't know. I know. I'm 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 the, I'm the exact same way. But I mean, for both Lonnie and Mike, I I'm, and Mike, I think I just think it's so interesting that you got stronger when you didn't have any carbs and you put like 80 pounds on your deadlift. So, you know, um, kind of elaborate on that. A little bit like how long did it did it take you to to kind of adapt because i know you know because i just wrote this article for elite fts it was actually called the, the fat and the furious but talking about you know all different types of fats and how saturated fat is not made out to be you know evil and stuff like that but you can fat adapt even though that's that's conventionally more used for endurance types of exercise but now it's 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 starting to transition over to uh you know lifters but and not only from a nutrition perspective, I just can't, I cannot train heavy like I, like I do and even volume wise on like low carb diets. I yeah. mean, I could go into the gym and, and do arms and calves and stuff if I wanted to on, uh, and, and low, lower carb, but any type of squatting, deadlifting, heavy overhead pressing, strongman stuff. Um, but I also think of it from an energy system perspective, you know, because at higher intensities, you know, you're using carbohydrates bioenergetically. So I'm just, I'm always, I'm always open-minded about how people are training on lower carb and how they adapt and get stronger. And it's just so interesting. And it goes back to what you said, Phil, a few minutes ago. It, it's not, it's not black and white. There's mm-hmm. so much gray area and there's so much inter individual responses to training and nutrition. So, um, kind of elaborate on that for a few minutes, Mike, how did, how long did it take you to adapt to it, and, and and did you feel like you were completely adapted at all? You know, I think that um, I think that we generally underappreciate how long it takes to for someone to be adapted. You know, probably because the the old diet book adage is that it takes about seventy two hours, and then two weeks late, you know, to seventy two hours before you start seeing urinary ketones, and then two weeks later you're pretty good, and you can start eating some more carbs, like. It really, like, if you talk to researchers, like, it can take six weeks. Like, yeah. and so then the question is, if you're a lifter, right, are you willing to then slog through six weeks of crappy workouts, mm. right, in order to become adapted? I just think most people aren't. Um, and so you never really get to the other side. Um, I generally eat a lower-carb diet, and so I, I, like, from a metabolic flexibility standpoint, I keto adapt pretty quickly. Okay. but. When I do, I notice. So for a while, when I started out, I was I was doing um I was doing keto blood sticks. So I was sticking my finger like with a um like a kind of like a glucometer, but it measures ketones. And um, for me to really get uh, an appreciable level of ketones in my blood, I need to I need to not overconsume protein and very much underconsume carbohydrates. So it's very difficult for me because usually when you think about going uh, ketogenic, you just think about cutting carbs. But, you know, excess protein will spill over to glucose and can actually mm-hmm. inhibit mm-hmm. genesis. Right. So I find when I go on a ketogenic diet, I need to eat less protein than I normally would. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Other And most people, you know, most people, they think of ketogenic diets and they think about eating steaks and all this other stuff. 
and I need to, it's, you know, I, after a while you get sick of it because you can't eat a lot of protein and you can't eat a lot of car, you know, you can't eat hardly any carbs. So you're basically like, you know, drinking oil. Like there's, you know, you, <laughs> you need the energy, but your, your sources or your food sources are so limited. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think part of the thing is with lifters is I just don't think they give themselves enough time to be fully keto adapted. Um, but you know, the research is pretty interesting that once you, once you do like function in a low glycogen fashion, that your body actually becomes more efficient with that glycogen. And there are, you know, changes at the MRNA level of what's getting translated and put into action, you know, different enzymes that make you more efficient at functioning without carbohydrates. Um, there's a, I just got it the other day, but I haven't really used it. Um, there's a new, it's like a breathalyzer for ketones that you can buy. Um, because those, those sticks where you like stick your finger, like the glucometer for keto, they're like three bucks a piece, those sticks. Yeah. And maybe they like, they, you know, they have like a 30% error rate. So you're just like, I mean, you're burning through money. Um, so that's not sustainable, but this is just a thing you blow in it. And then it like, a um, like a breathalyzer and it, and it glows a certain color depending on the level, you know, your level of ketosis. And, um, I think that's really practical you know generally urinary ketone sticks can be very variable and that's been the traditional method which people measure whether they're keto adapted or not um so you know i think that you need to spend more time getting adapted and i think you know you need to then that's on an exercise side but also on a dietary side looking at not over consuming protein but i also think that i mean it's not that much better you know like if you look at performance like performance it's yeah. pretty close um, like I, I'm not going to tell you that if you go ketogenic, like all of a sudden your performance is going to be so much better. Like I don't, it's, I don't just don't think it's the case. I think that it's very, it's individual and that you're really looking at a five or 10% maybe difference at the top end, you know, if yeah. you dietary pattern, that's better for you, you know? Um, yeah. Cause I, uh, I wrote this part two of energy systems article for leader TS, which actually comes out next month. And you know, it was basically on, you know, which energy systems and which fuel sources that most people use, you know, for training and bioenergetically. I mean, it, it is carbs, for, you know, for the most part, especially when you get up to, you know, 80, 85 percent of intensity, even though that's, you know, traditionally built on VO2 max, but it, but it still applies to lifting. But towards the end of the article, I also mentioned that, you know, you could possibly fat adapt. I mean, there's so much individual responses between you know, depending on genetics and goals you know and, and how dedicated that you may be so again it's just i just i think i think of it from a from a training more of a training perspective in which fuels that that you're using because i mean just like you lonnie i mean i just i cannot train the way i do if i just ate fat so. Well, I think that when you get keto adapted, it, it changes like the biochemical game changes, you know, yeah. like your brain generally runs on glucose. But when you become fat adapted, it becomes much more adept at running on ketones, right. you know, you know, intramuscular fat when you're when you're fat adapted becomes a much more important fuel source. And I think the body is very adaptive. And I think that, um, you know, that you can you could be very efficient and train very well. Um, and hard when you're keto adapted. Just the question is, one, do you have any interest in sticking it out for, you know, eight weeks until you can get back to like a base level of training from an energy perspective? Yeah. And then like, is it going to provide you any additional benefit? Probably not. Let's go to break just quickly because we've pushed it pretty far. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll just pick up the conversation. I just got to go to break here. 
Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Iron Radio listeners are a unique bunch. You value both in-the-trenches skills and the research and evidence that informs it. That's why, as a listener-supported show, we occasionally do funds drives to keep everything free and advancing. Did you know your donations at www.ironradio.org pay for web servers? They allow for small sponsorships of gifted competitors or students and even partly fund research on our specific population. That's what we're asking for during the spring and early summer funds drive. Dr. Lowry, that's me, and some students are on the verge of some key discoveries involving caffeine and explosive lifts, but we need help to get the message out. If you value the authenticity, expertise, and real progress Iron Radio provides, please consider a donation. Any amount is appreciated, but if you could put forward $25 or more and email robertfortney at hotmail.com about it, We'll send you some behind-the-scenes audio lab notes that were recorded during data collection. They offer true insight into what research is like on barbell athletes. Thank you for considering it. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, uh, we're back from break. Uh, John, Mike here, uh, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Phil Stevens, and we have Dr. Mike Roussel um, back from break. So we're talking about uh, fat adaptation um, performance on lower types of carbohydrate diets. Um, so before we went to break, we were talking about 
you know, it does your performance, you know, increase on lower carb and higher fat types of diets and the biochemistry involved and how you can, the the game changes about biochemically, you know, once you kind of adapt it. So my question for you, Mike, uh, before we went to break was, you know, what's the sustainability of that long term? Because you, you did mention that it takes about maybe six weeks, you know, possibly a little bit more to, to really adapt. And on the whole, we tend to underestimate how much time it really takes to really adapt, which is very, very true. But what's the sustainability of that long term? Are these just eight to 10 week types of, you know, performance trials, if you will, or, you know, can you do this for three months or, or six months? Um, you know, what, what say you? No. So, I mean, I think the sustainability, if you look at what I think like the rate limiting step or what's the thing that's holding you back from the sustainability of the diet, it's probably behavioral. You know, you could, there's no reason why you couldn't be keto adapted for your whole life, but you know, do you want your only carb source to be asparagus, spinach, and Brussels sprouts? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. it's very, like, after a while, like, it's just, like, it gets so limited. And I, I think, and even if, you know, bodybuilders and powerlifters are, are well-versed in the monotony of diet, right? But ketogenic diets take that monotony to another level. Like, the um, the novelty of, of bacon really wears off after a while. Yeah. Um, you're like, man, I would just kill to have a clementine right now. And so, um, so I really think the sustainability side is, is more on the behavioral side of things. And, um, you know, and because of that, that's, I think a big rub for, for very low carbohydrate diets, because if it's not something that you're going to, it doesn't really provide a superior, um, benefit in the short term, you know, versus just being very consistent to maybe just a generally carb restricted plan. And it makes it very difficult long-term to follow. So why not just figure out the, the diet approach that works for you really well that you can follow forever and then get really good at that one, um, you know, I think is, is the better approach because I think sustainability, I mean, after six months, I'm usually tapped out on a ketogenic diet. I've never been able to make it longer. Yeah. You know, yeah, if I can uh, interject just quickly, it, there's also, when it comes to individuality, it's not just genes, it's age. I mean, I can tell you right now, I cannot eat the level of carbohydrates I did in my 20s. I would be, you know, a beanbag chair. It would not be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it almost seems like some of these lower carb diets may actually be even more advantageous. I mean, it's pretty well documented in the literature that, you know, as you progress in age, your insulin sensitivity, your, you know, uh, glucose handling actually becomes a bit poorer. You know, and I almost think like the middle-aged listeners could potentially even benefit more from keeping an eye on carbs. Maybe not all the way to the point, like you were saying, Mike, for a, you know, live on bacon and, and Brussels sprouts kind of thing. But, you know, yeah. keep an eye on those carbs. Be very strategic yeah, think, with them, well, as you're you say. Totally, yeah, you're totally right. I think that every, you know, like carbohydrate res- restriction, I like to think about it as a spectrum. You know, it's not it's not Dean Ornish or... Atkins, right? There's like there's a sliding scale, mm-hmm. and uh, and that yeah, that everybody should be restricting their carbs at some level, um, especially the older you get. But it doesn't necessarily need to be 20 grams a day. Yeah, but there, there, there's mm-hmm. these there's these stupid like you know uh, guru fitness and you know bikini coaches and bodybuilding coaches out there that you know that that tell clients that well you know don't eat any carbs after four o'clock and you know type of crap and you know it's just I don't know. I just it's so it's so frustrating because it, no one wants to take the damn time 
to really learn any of this stuff. And they just want this one size fits all approach that, that, that wants to work for everybody. And then, and then it's like when you're trying to please everybody, why not pleasing no one type of thing? Yeah, I can, you know what? I can tell you, I, I think actually one of the reasons that I once wrote that article about, you know, uh, temporal nutrition and avoiding carbs later in the day is because I think behaviorally, it's actually one of the most advantageous. If, for example, in my household, we were eating bread and pasta at dinner, and when we pulled that out, it wasn't that painful to to have lean meats and vegetables. We started eating a lot more vegetables, you know, and that kind of thing. Whereas I, I wasn't taking my oatmeal away in the morning, my oats and berries or that sort of thing, which I consider healthy behaviors, you know, and I didn't consider the bread and the pasta uh, necessarily healthy behaviors, you know, or d- some sugary dessert afterwards or whatever, you know what I mean? So sometimes it's, it's almost just what time of day is it behaviorally advantageous? Because I agree with what you guys have been saying. I mean, you know, a lot of times it's the, it's not the theory, it's the practice. If you could just, you know, not victimize, be victimized by the food industry and that kind of stuff and get with yeah, a I mean- program you know, and stick with it for a few months. It's like what Phil's always talking to all of us are about like weightlifting programs. You know, you can't just spot check in two weeks and say, am I huge? Am I ripped? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. crazy. And I, and I think, and I think that's where a lot of the, you know, and I know we've all written for, you know, basic consumer magazines, but th- this whole notion that, you know, four weeks to this, six weeks to that. I mean, I, and we all know this is a bunch of BS. It, if you want to get to where any type of successful level, it doesn't take six weeks. It takes just years. I mean, even you just, just like you said, Mike, if you want to fat, you know, adapt, I mean, you got to allow yourself a six to eight week period where, where you're willing to, to suffer a little bit on the performance side to, 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 to adapt, right? I mean, it's not going to, people think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fat adapt in two days, you know, then, I, then I'm going to get shredded. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Eight weeks, that's usually like, I mean, that's like an eight-week ramp-up period. <laughs> is what, you know, you get promised results and usually, the, you know, most programs by the end of that time. I started working on a project with Men's Health. A, um, It's like kind of a hypertrophy, trying to take a guy who's never lifted very small and, 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 and bulk him up. And, and we were talking about time frame, and they were like, what are we doing, like six, eight weeks? And, and I'm like, how about like 16 weeks? What's the longest that we could run this? Because, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. It's slow. Um, people just don't appreciate that. No, I think it's one of the best things that we can do as nutritionists or physiologists is to educate the public on realistic timeframes for body composition change because the tabloids in the in the fitness magazines are just freaking ruining that. You know, slabs of muscle, you know, two inches on your guns in, in six weeks and that sort of stuff. And Well, the thing is, know. I mean, I don't know if you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys follow like Stu Phillips, but I mean, even if you're going back to classic studies by uh, like Basin for like, like anabolic steroids, I mean, e- even a, a moderate amount of, of, of anabolics, you're, you're, the average muscle gain is like six to eight kg and that's mm-hmm. in like 12 weeks, you know? So it, it's the, it, the same concept and principles applied to, you know, training and nutrition. It's not, you know, 28 days to ripness and all this other silliness. Yeah, Yeah. there's a reason that I demand, like with any client I'm working with, I I demand a three-month minimum. And it's not because I suck. It's because it takes a little while to get even even into a system. Exactly, it's biology. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you can always (sighs) check 
the whatever results your program is promising you against steroid research. Yeah. And if you know if you're promising greater gains and less times on the drug. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, I remember some of those old studies. I think Casey Viator was involved in some of those. Uh, I don't even know if they were ever published as case studies, but they, it was almost like a case example of how high-dose anabolic steroids, like what kind of change is even humanly possible. And, you know, and some of that work, if I remember right, he was gaining like a pound a day, you know, and you know <laughs> it was mostly lean mass. I mean, a lot of it's probably water, but it's just funny. Yeah, because a lot of the suggestions you get out of these uh, hokey diet books and diet plans and stuff like that off of internet gurus. It, you're right. Comparing it, they make it almost look like that. And he's like, that's high-dose anabolics in a professional bodybuilder. You know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Listen, I want to get out a quick question um, for all of you guys. And Phil, let me ask you too, and then, of course, you two guys, everybody can chime in here, but this is a very simplified question, uh, but I want you to bring your expertise to bear. Um, we're talking about eating lots of fats, you know what I mean? And we're not really talking as much about carbohydrates, which are just so traditional, I think, in the ex-phys literature. I mean, God, the Catch McCardle book that I teach exercise I physiology out of, those guys are so pro-carb, you know. They are. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, I'll ask you first, Phil. <laughs> Is it possible to eat too much meat and why if you're a lifter? I mean, I'd say so. I mean, just for the fact, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, if I eat too much, it's just a simple fact that I just feel slow as hell. Um, like, I can't go cram down a 16-ounce ribeye and then go train. So uh -huh. that would be my only reasoning why. I mean, other than that, I don't think you – it would be really tough to, like, sit down and overconsume. You're, you're not going to sit down – like, I've seen people sit down and eat, like, a whole chocolate cake. You take a piece of meat the same size as that, they're, they're just not going to be able to finish it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of self-limiting in a way just because it's so, you know, filling. But, um, yeah, I think, it, I mean, yeah, I think it depends. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, you also have to think too, I mean, if you're, if you're eating the 32 ounce steak, I mean, the, it, the energy cost for protein digestibility is, is more expensive, yeah. you know, than it is for fat, you know, and carbs and, and the, the satiety effect is a lot higher. So, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Phil. I mean, if you're eating that much piece of a, a meat, or even if it's like 12 ounces or whatever, I mean, it, it takes a, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it takes a little bit longer to digest um, just because of the, the protein quality and you have the satiety effect that, that you don't get, that you do get, um, um, that you don't get with, a, like with carbs. But I don't know if you could really overconsume like too much meat in one sitting. I mean, yeah, there's the whole, you know, well, you know, you can't digest that much protein in, like in one sitting. But I mean, tell that to all the whatever you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're um, not going to poop out a steak. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, you know so, what? I think personally, um, but, but it only oh, becomes maybe? a problem if if you're displacing the all the fruits and all the vegetables. Yeah. Like one of the guys I met backstage uh, when I was in St. Louis a couple of years ago, he ate only chicken for a year. I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. disturbing to me on some level. Oh, you know God. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we also can't forget that meats, foods are not single nutrients, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, it's probably better to eat a medium fat kind of beef product, let's say, if you're trying to gain some weight, you know, like you were saying, John, you're making the distinction about fuel and, you know, digestibility and, and you know, the cost of all of it. Uh, but what do you think, Mike, uh, as far as, you know, cholesterol, saturated fat, the protein content, uh, 
you mentioned, for example, if you want to be in ketosis, you're not going to go totally hog wild on protein because it, it can actually keep you out of ketosis. Um, yeah. But what are your thoughts about you know too much meat from the fat perspective or or whatever? Well, I think if if you look at it, you know, you just kind of kind of look at it at the context of what are the nutrient targets you're trying to hit in your diet. And so, you know, if you just ate exclusively meat, it would be impossible to hit all your nutrient targets. Mm-hmm. Just like you said, it would start displacing other foods. But so, but if you were to say, I'm going to meet my protein needs only from meat, I mean, there's not, I mean, there's no reason why you can't do that. Um, and there's no, there's no negative health effect. You know, if you look at, um, you know, beef in particular, you know, beef is about 50% monounsaturated fat. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, most people don't realize that uh, – so my PhD, was, it was in basically beef and, and heart disease. But um, there are over 30 cuts of beef that meet the criteria of, from the USDA for lean. Mm. And at least, I think at least 25 of them that have a fat content somewhere between a chicken breast and a chicken thigh, mm-hmm. right? And most people, awesome. don't picture, most people don't picture beef like in that, yeah. uh, in that light. So um, from a – from a nutritional standpoint, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't meet your protein needs exclusively from from meats. Um, I think if you started getting into the processed meats, you know, you run into some other, you might run into some other problems. But um, but generally, it's not, you know, it's not a, a automatic red flag like most people think. Uh, guys, if you were looking exclusively from beef, eventually, you know, if you're you know if you're getting 200 grams of protein a day just from beef, you probably run into an issue with excessive iron. Mm-hmm. But um, but, you know, I think that your meat intake is more limited by, you know, what your nutritional needs are um, and not there's a set point which X amount of, you know, beef per day becomes unhealthy. Right. And that's, yeah. I mean, if you want to just get purely into it, is it possible? Of course. You, you can kill yourself with water. You know, and what is it, rabbits wasting disease or whatnot? If you went with, like, with found the leanest cut of beef and, like, that's all I'm going to consume. Then yeah, you got problems, but you're talking that way at the other end of the spectrum. You'd really have to try, I think, to uh, jack yourself up from eating nothing but meat. I was just say like you just you end up just overconsuming. I mean, you can yeah. overconsume anything. Like, um, what was this the scientist? I think it's Rand Steely, I think his name is. Um, he's in Cincinnati. He's like the head of a, a, a diabetic um, science um, group over there, and he always talks about food as hormones mm-hmm. and. You know, like in your body, once you cross over that homeostatic level, like once you be, move into a caloric excess, you know, then there's a big shift in what happens at the biochemical level. And you could overconsume anything. Like you could overconsume yeah. kale, right? If you start eating so much kale that you're above, <laughs> you know, and you're hypercaloric, then that becomes mm-hmm. that has s- certain effects that are be good. a challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, you can overconsume any nutrient, really. Um, we just, you know, tend to think about, you know, the ones that are the you know higher protein, higher fat foods that yeah. are easier to consume. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, meat meat also has like a lot of. Uh, I mean, I, I know good things is is over way oversimplified, but I mean, Lonnie, I mean, you've talked about meat before it has you know zool chemicals, you know, so it has well, a carnosine, lot of really good, creatine, yeah, yeah, exactly, I and mean, yeah. carnosine, creatine. I mean, it's just you name it. I mean, but like you said, Mike, I mean, we don't. No one really thinks about those things. It's always you know. Fat, bad, bad, bad. I mean, for Christ's sake. <laughs> well, it's amazing to me, like Mike brought up earlier, you know, the uh, testimonial from the vegan group. And I think a lot of times those persons, and I again, I think vegetarianism, I prefer lacto-ovo, but I think that can be a, a very successful approach 
to a lot of things. There's even been famous bodybuilders like Andreas Colling back in the days. He was a vegetarian. Uh, now, I don't think, I know this might offend some people, but again, you can't take the emotion into all this, but uh, mm. Stu Phillips' group's been showing you know, that soy simply doesn't support muscle hypertrophy like, yeah. uh, you know, for example, animal uh, proteins like dairy and whatnot. But I wanted to offer something really quick because I've mentioned this probably in years past, but we're talking about uh, beneficial substances in meat. Uh, and again, maybe the, the vegan crowd doesn't want to hear this, but there was a guy at Kent State, Steve Reichman, and he went down to uh, Texas somewhere. I can't remember now, but let me read you a quote from one of his papers. And I don't know how much this ever panned out, but this is like an 07, 08 stuff. Um, here's the title. The title says a lot. Statins and dietary and serum cholesterol are associated with increased lean mass following resistance training. So now the weird thing is they found that dietary cholesterol or serum cholesterol, it was directly correlated. The more, a higher cholesterol concentrations you have, the more muscle mass you gain. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing is they also found that with statins, which lower cholesterol. But let me read you the results here. They put these, uh, Middle-aged and older guys on a weightlifting program, uh, training program for, uh, th I think, three days a week for like 12 weeks or something. Quote, we observed a dose-response relationship between dietary cholesterol from food logs and gains in lean mass. Serum cholesterol and the serum cholesterol-lowering agent statin were also independently associated with in increases in lean mass. And then to the point that Mike was just discussing why they're finally going to remove some of this from some of the recommendations, uh, this is just one example of many other studies. Dietary cholesterol was not associated with serum cholesterol. Uh, so interesting stuff there, right? The A, the dietary cholesterol, although it seemed to drive gains in muscle mass, it really wasn't connected to serum cholesterol that much. But it also suggests that higher serum cholesterol may be advantageous to muscle gain. And if you look at the literature, you can actually find some things about mood stabilization with higher cholesterol as opposed to really low cholesterol in your blood. Uh, and that sort of stuff. So population specifics, right? We keep talking about individuality, but uh, Reichman's research makes it look like cholesterol would be something that would actually help with muscular gain. I mean, could you imagine a bottle, a dietary supplement bottle with it's got nothing but like sat fat and cholesterol in it? I mean, people are paying for it. <laughs> Just hilarious. You know? Louis Simmons would market it. Yeah, He's all right. about the cholesterol. <laughs> yeah. So. so, you know, that is... That is really interesting. I mean, I wonder, um, I wonder if with the if the correlation that they had with uh, dietary cholesterol and muscle gain, because I mean, dietary cholesterol also tracks with you know high protein, you know, foods that are high in essential. Oh, well, um, actually, it's a good point. It says uh, the gains in lean mass were not affected by variability in protein intake. So I think they controlled for that. I think they covariated for that. Yeah, it's um, interesting though. Yeah, that is really interesting. And again, I'm not saying – I'm just throwing that out, right? What a wild and uh, heretical idea that <laughs> – like you were saying, I can almost see like a Louis Simmons kind of group. You know, mm -hmm. they want to be edgy. They start selling – instead of fish oils, it's got, I don't know, like stearic acid and then straight <laughs> pharmaceutical <laughs> cholesterol in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, remember like years ago – maybe it was like, God, like maybe like 10 years ago, they were selling um, arachidonic acid mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. for hypertrophy. Right. Um, yeah, it's probably not, not actually too crazy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we are just about out of time, guys. So I wanted to say thanks to Dr. Roussel. Obviously, you generated a lot of uh, 
a lot of discussion. Yeah. It's fun stuff. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. It was awesome. So uh, yeah, we'll be back it. next week, everybody. Uh, you know, same time, same place. And, you know, Mike, if you're up for it, uh, your wealth of knowledge, we'll get you back on and we'll talk about some other stuff, too. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. Sounds fun. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.